Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author and speaker, Thais Gibson. Hello, Thais, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about codependency and enmeshment. And for those that don't know, Thais Gibson is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is passionate about personal growth, the subconscious mind, and connecting with others. Thais is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of their life. With an MA in transpersonal psychology and over 13 different certifications ranging from cognitive behavioral therapy to hypnosis, Thais strives to continuously learn and grow, building a knowledge base she uses to help people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance, and personal freedom in their lives. How are you doing today, Thais? Awesome. I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, too, and I'm excited, and I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come onto the show. I know you're quite an incredible content creator with your YouTube channel and with your own school, helping people lead more amazing and incredible lives. I'm just curious, you know, what keeps you going? What's your motivating force day to day? I would say I really just eat, live, breathe this stuff. This was very personal to me. Like I, I grew up, definitely had some big attachment trauma challenges in my upbringing. I became addicted to painkillers after knee surgery at 14 years old and really didn't find my way out of that despite seven years basically of trying until I really learned about the subconscious mind and then had such powerful like healing and transformation come out of it that it was like, oh my goodness, there's a way to like heal and learn and, and things can change. And it was just so eye-opening for me and so powerful that um, it became really personal. And so being able to like share this with other people really fills my, my buckets and really meets my needs as a person. I love sharing. I love like emotionally connecting to people, learning about people. I'm always interested in human behavior and psychology. So, you know, I definitely don't have to motivate myself too much. It kind of flows out naturally. So you've done the work. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Big <yourself>. time, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Um, wonderful. So today we're going to talk about some negative behaviors we find in relationships, codependency and enmeshment. But before we go into kind of what can go wrong in relationships, I'd love to talk about what can go right. So what are some signs of a secure and healthy partnership? Oh my gosh, great question. Okay, so I would say some really important components a, should be active in a relationship, but B, are a really good sign that somebody is securely attached in a relationship, are number one, they feel comfortable being vulnerable. So they feel comfortable sharing their feelings, sharing you know things that might hurt them, bother them, anything like that. And they feel that it's safe to express their feelings and also to feel and experience their own emotions. It's very common for people to be quite emotionally repressed and out of touch with like 
their emotions that they're feeling on a regular basis and what feedback the emotions are giving to them. And also, you know, what sensations the emotions are experienced as in the body. And so often we're quite repressed from that. That's a really important part of how we relate to ourselves and how we learn to relate to others. And then I would say, you know, are we expressing our needs to people in relationships? Are we saying what we need? And are we also saying what we don't need, aka are we expressing boundaries? And then do we have a capacity to meet our own needs as well as receive them from others? Because sometimes, you know, as we talk about codependency, we can really get into like the mutual exclusivity of things where we expect I'm going to meet all of your needs and you're going to meet all of my needs and that's how it works. And really, if we don't have the ability to maintain a relationship to ourselves and our own needs while being in relationship to others, then we go into codependency instead of healthy interdependence. And then I would also say the ability to empathize and communicate and trust are all very important components of a healthy relationship. Wow, that's a really wonderful list. So what I'm hearing from you is one, vulnerability, two, express our needs and a willingness to do that, three, healthy boundaries, and four, kind of a willingness to meet our own needs on our own and kind of be happy on our own. And then ability to empathize, communicate, and trust. That's a tall order, actually, now that I read this list. (laughs) (laughs) But if we get these things right, it doesn't just impact our relationships. It impacts like the relationship we have to ourselves, the relationship to our coworkers, to our family members, our children, you know, it kind of spreads out into everything. So important stuff to master for sure. So you spend a lot of time working with attachment theory, particularly as it relates to our subconscious mind. And I think a lot of people think that they are in total control of their relationships, that they totally decide everything that they say and they do. But that's not very true, right? We are guided by so many unconscious patterns laid down early on. And you just even mentioned like repressed behavior, repressed emotions that we might have learned early on. So I'm wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about how our early childhood experiences affect our subconscious mind as adults. So you can sort of think of your subconscious mind as like the lens that you see reality through. And you can think of it as sort of being like the windshield on your car. So we all see reality through a filter of our past experiences. And so we're not ever experiencing the same objective reality. We are all experiencing, even if we're in the same objective reality as somebody else, we're experiencing it through this lens, through this filter of our past, which really makes it very subjective. So you can imagine, for example, that let's say that we have Tom and Bob, and let's say Tom grew up and he had a really wonderful relationship to women. Maybe he got along really well with his mother and his sisters and had lots of female friends and healthy romantic partnerships. And then let's say Bob you know, his mother left young, he always fought with his sisters, had, you know, volatile romantic relationships. And let's pretend one day they think that they're walking into a workshop that's going to be a men's group. And by accident, they go into the wrong room. And they open the door and it's all women. You know, they're going to have totally different emotional experiences in that moment because of their subjective interpretation of that event, even though they're in the exact same objective reality, they're in the same room seeing the same thing. And so what we sort of want to think about is that we all have these subconscious programs that are largely based on the imprints we have, based on our early attachment experiences, and we are constantly reprojecting these old beliefs, ideas, concepts, feelings, associations onto our external reality that's a lot more about our internal past. And so when we try to go through life 
only navigating the supposed objective reality in front of us, we really have a tough time because we really have to see how we're kind of co-creating that experience in our internal space based on these old beliefs we're carrying in, old emotional imprints, old fears, old traumas, all these different dynamics. And when we can really get a clear picture of what our personal blueprint is like, like what we really are carrying, and we can understand our windshield, what we have the, the capacity to do is if you think of trauma being splats on your windshield of like mud, when we go through a painful experience that clog our ability to really see out of our windshield in like a healthy, safe way, you can think of understanding your subconscious reprogramming or understanding your subconscious mind's landscape essentially, and then reprogramming it as being like cleaning off your windshield so you can see clearly again. You can feel like you're driving more safely through the world and and a lot of positive things can really come out of that. So every time we go through an experience in childhood that's painful, that we can't properly emotionally process, it basically imprints our subconscious mind and it's really a matter of time before we, we have a tendency to reproject that back out onto our external reality again. So I love so many of the definitions you just gave. So first I heard was our subconscious mind is the lens we see reality through. And that's just a, such a distinct definition. Then you mentioned that we all see reality through a filter of our past experiences. So we all have this like lens, like we all have these glasses, basically, that's filtering our subjective reality. And then this is a really beautiful metaphor that you said is basically trauma and painful experiences is almost like mud on those glasses. It's almost like a scratch on the glasses and we think it's reality, but it's really our own lens that we're seeing through. So I would probably say most people are pretty unaware of this lens, pretty unaware of their patterns and childhood trauma that they maybe they forgot about a long time ago. So I'm curious, how do we begin to work through these unconscious patterns? How do we begin to, you know, polish the glasses and wipe off the mud, so to speak? So beautiful question. I love to put it in the framework of attachment styles because of the fact that what I've done is sort of grouped your attachment style with specific core wounds we tend to carry, specific ideas, specific subconscious expectations we carry into our relationships, emotional imprints, there do tend to be very strong patterns. So maybe I can sort of break it into that and share where people can get started if that works. But at a very high level, people can just ask themselves, like, what are my stories that I carry? What are the stories I constantly tell myself about men, women, relationships, commitment, marriage, giving and receiving, deserving my own self-worth? Like, what are the, the stories I tell in those different things? And whatever comes up for you and you can see that you definitely narrate in your internal dialogue or think a lot about or fear a lot about. You can bet that those stories that you're carrying are definitely a part of that internal landscape and a part of that lens you see the world through. So that's like one very high level way of approaching it. But if we go through the attachment styles, I can just touch on it at a, at a quite high level too, but share more about the core wounds. So basically we have four attachment styles and one is the securely attached individual and they tend to have very healthy programming. They usually had very healthy parenting growing up. And overall, they don't have any specific major core wounds. They sort of have a lot of those tools that you and I talked about in the very beginning about trust and honesty and communication and feeling safe, being vulnerable and things like that. But then we have our three insecurely attached individuals. And at one end of the continuum in a way is the dismissive avoidant. And the dismissive avoidant usually grows up with some form of emotional neglect in childhood. And this can be really overt emotional neglect where also there's physical neglect and food's not on the table and they're not 
being taken care of with their hygiene, things like this, but can also be sort of under the radar emotional neglect. And what will happen is the child grows up in a household wanting to connect. We biologically crave connection. We want that attachment. One of our only biological fears is the fear of abandonment. And we reach out, we want to connect with people. And then when our parents aren't emotionally nurturing, they're not saying, oh, how are you feeling or talking about emotions, especially for young men, right? Like, oh, big men don't cry. Don't be a baby. You know, these sorts of messages we get that neglect that child's emotions. What that child basically learns is, okay, this inherent part of me that values connection, that wants to to bond with other people is being rejected. So the child can't see from a higher perspective and go, oh, my parents are emotionally unavailable. So instead that child goes, there must be something wrong with me. I must be defective. I must be wrong for feeling the way I feel. So this child usually grows up and they have some kind of emotional neglect and then imagining that that's the lens that we see the world through. How do you think that child grows up to learn to connect with other people? Well, they, they really fear intimacy. They fear being vulnerable because all of their subconsciously programmed associations are, well, vulnerability doesn't get me anywhere. It just gets me rejected by people. It just makes me feel like there's something wrong with me or I'm defective. And so this individual usually has these really strong core wounds where they believe, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm unsafe connecting to other people. I am defective or something's wrong with me. I am trapped in close, intimate relationships, and they often are really trying to take space and get away from people and keep them at arm's length. And it's not because they are disliking people that they're in relationships with or, or they're cold or uncaring. It's because that trauma that created this you know, mud splat on the windshield, so to speak, is now something they're trying to avoid at all costs. They do not want to feel again like they felt in childhood when they were vulnerable and it felt rejected. And so, you know, we have that sort of individual at one end of the spectrum. And obviously, if, if that's something you're experiencing, then we have to work through those exact wounds, the fears of vulnerability, the beliefs in, in being defective, the, the deep subconscious shame that comes with that, like a lot of those different dynamics. And then at the other end of the continuum, you have your anxious, preoccupied individual. And this individual often feel some kind of perceived abandonment in childhood. And it can be that both caregivers are warm and loving, but they both work a lot. So there's this like juxtaposed, I get closeness and then it gets taken away. Or it can be that a child was given up for adoption at a very young age, or one parent's really warm, one parent's really cold, and the juxtaposition of those two creates this perceived abandonment. But for whatever number of reasons, this child basically consistently learns to fear having closeness and connection being taken away. And so you can imagine this individual, their personal mud splats on their windshield are like, I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be alone or excluded or disliked or rejected or not good enough. And that's why I'm getting rejected. And so that becomes a lot of that individual's really big core wounds. And of course, they go on in relationships to always want more closeness, to always try to cling to people. They're often the people we might unfairly judge as needy or insecure or things like this, but really they're just trying to avoid their own traumas from childhood where they felt really uncomfortable. And so a lot of their healing becomes reprogramming those core wounds, learning to meet their own needs, learning to have more independence, learning to be more autonomous, learning to rely more on themselves and kind of like really building out that relationship to themselves. And then the very last major one to give people sort of a framework to start is the fearful avoidant. And this attachment style is somebody who experiences both ends of the attachment spectrum. They both feel anxious, but they can also become really avoidant and kind of pull back. 
And usually it's because they have some kind of trauma around connection in childhood, where maybe a caregiver really betrayed them. Maybe a caregiver was an alcoholic or a drug addict or abusive. And the child had some positive associations to connection, but then also had some really negative ones. And what this does for that child is it makes them like want closeness, but be terrified of it at the same time. And so this person grows up in their adult lives to be the hot and cold partner. It's like, come get close to me, come get close. And somebody gets close and they're like, no, no, get back, stay away. And they're always sort of flip-flopping between that neediness and then that hyper-independence and almost counter-dependence in a way to push people away and protect themselves. And a lot of their biggest wounds are really around trust and learning to trust connection and learning that connection is safe and people are trustworthy and really reprogramming that internal trust baseline. So you can sort of think of it as falling in those main categories and based on those core beliefs and problems we tend to experience as the attachment style we are because there's only four and every single person has one. So it can sort of fit neatly into those categories to a certain degree. From there, those are the things that I get people to really focus in on. Like what are my core wounds? What are my painful mud splots on my windshield? And when I get really clear about them, then I can plug them into reprogramming tools and start to see really profound results. So very succinct summary you just made of an entire body of research, right? Attachment theory. So for our listeners, there are four attachment styles, and I'll just repeat what I heard from you. Fearful avoidant, anxious preoccupied, dismissive avoidant, and then kind of the one we want and we want to build towards, which is secure attachment. And I like that you prefaced going into attachment styles with the stories we tell ourselves and to examine the stories that we're constantly telling ourselves about love, about relationships, about intimacy, about other people, about connection. Because when you were describing like, okay, as a child, you have this experience and it creates this pattern in your mind. It's that story again, right? So like the child that experiences like a sense of neglect, for example, kind of comes to a conclusion that they're on their own. They can't rely on other people for their needs. And the child that was abandoned comes to the story that a person's going to leave them and they have to do things to make sure that doesn't happen. So it mentioned dismissive avoidant, and one of your most popular YouTube videos with, with over a quarter million views is called The Dismissive Avoidance Idea of a Healthy Relationship. And I'm wondering what that story, the dismissive avoidant, is kind of like telling themselves. What is a dismissive avoidance idea of a healthy relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. So this individual, one of the big things that they really value is they value having relationships to other people that basically don't threaten them in any way. And the reason for this at a deep level is, remember how earlier we were saying that one of the only three biological fears that we have that we basically come into the world with is the fear of abandonment. And if you look at our species, it's because we actually need attachment. Children are not, you know, they don't come out of the womb and then they're ready to go out on their own. Like we take a long time to develop. And even like the way our brain develops over time, we are highly reliant on our caregivers for survival purposes. And if you imagine that you're a baby and you come into the world and you don't speak the language of anybody around you, you don't know what on earth is going on. All you know is that these people that are are taking care of you are the people that are basically helping you survive. And one of the things that children pick up on very strongly is something called attunement. It's basically like, is this person attuned? Are they paying attention when I have negative emotion? Do they come towards me when I express emotion? Do they meet my needs? Are they consistent about feeding me? These sorts of things. And it's basically how much that caregiver is really present with you and able to pick up on the cues that you're giving. 
And when we have emotional neglect, like the dismissive avoidant goes through, there's a big lack of attunement that's taking place. And while it can be something that really flies under the radar, what that does for a child who has that biological fear of abandonment is it puts them into sympathetic nervous system mode really profoundly, aka fight or flight mode. So now this child grows up and they are in basically a systematic state of sympathetic nervous system. They are literally in chronic fight or flight mode. So when you imagine a person growing up that's going to be in chronic fight or flight mode, and then is also going to have negative feelings about intimacy because it didn't go well for them and their feelings towards it that were programmed were like, whoa, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't work. I just get rejected. Basically, you're going to see that this person in their adult lives then wants to navigate relationships according to avoiding those pain points. So they're going to really want harmony, lightness, relationships where people can connect with them, but it's from a distance. It's nothing that threatens their sense of safety or security. It's nothing that's going to have to make them expose themselves and be really emotionally available and intimate and then make them relive those old pains and wounds. And so they often want to basically go in the exact opposite direction of what their childhood experiences were. And this is how the mind works anyways. We're always trying to equilibrate. And so this adult, it will be the person who fears commitment, fears too much closeness, wants just harmony, safety, predictability, people who will be there and and be light and easy People who will compliment them and and give them affirmation. And a big part of that is because of if we believe something's wrong with me, then the exact opposite of feeling like you're defective is basically having affirmation and encouragement. And because the brain is trying to heal from those old wounds by equilibrating through its adult life experiences, we'll often feel really drawn to people who are like giving us affirmation, giving us encouragement, that kind of thing. So a lot of what the dismissive avoidant really wants in their adult lives is to really boil it down, safety, understanding of their autonomy and need for that, not too much emotional closeness, lightness, things that are are sort of easygoing, simple, and then through words of affirmation, through encouragement, through feeling seen and heard and noticed, emotionally supported, these sorts of things. Basically the exact things that they didn't really feel comfortable around in childhood. Yeah, just hearing your description, you know, of a dismissively avoidant adult, you know, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit to think about the imperfect and lacking childhoods that many people received. And I even remember reading a study that like, yes, as an adult, the stress response hormones in your body, like cortisol, are still at an elevated level from all the way back to childhood. And I do want to get into codependency, but I feel like, you know, we've been waiting in the weeds a a little bit. And I want to just give a little drop of hope into these people's lives before we get into more negative behavior. So for that like person who's listening to this episode, and you mentioned that the dismissive avoidant person looks for relationships that doesn't threaten them in any way, and they keeps things light and they avoid commitment, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. <laughs> What's your hope for them? What's your don't worry, it'll be okay. The mind is plastic. What's the path towards healing? So one of the first things that I always say to people is all of these things were programmed in. You are not born with these things. So these aren't like, this isn't a diagnosis. This isn't like, oh, you were born structurally with like your amygdala being small, like nothing like that. You basically just got a set of patterns, AKA like the splats on your windshield, the the splats of mud. And all we have to do is clean them out. And just in the same way that these things were programmed into you, which essentially the subconscious mind is programmed and reprogrammed through repetition plus emotion as like an overarching guiding principle, 
we can reprogram ourselves through exactly the same principles. So when we can oppose these stories, these ideas, these unmet needs that we have by literally doing the opposite of what was originally done to us, neural pathways atrophy over time, just like muscles do. So if we stop feeding and firing and wiring those old stories by telling new ones and and setting those old ones to rest, or if the things that weren't met in our lives, like we had, let's say, for example, the huge unmet need of being emotionally nurtured, when we start doing that in the relationship to ourselves, we actually start giving ourselves the unmet need. We fire and wire new patterns, new pathways, and over time, they get deeper and deeper. Research shows it takes roughly 21 days to create a new set of subconscious programs and roughly 63 days for that set of subconscious programs to reach further into our unconscious mind where they stay longer and they sort of get rooted more deeply and they're hard to actually remove. So anybody who thinks, oh my gosh, am I going to be stuck this way forever? No, like all you have to do is literally do some subconscious reprogramming work. And if you give yourself three months of really good reprogramming work, and maybe I can even share like a really great starter tool at the end of the podcast for where to start with subconscious reprogramming and some steps you can follow that that work really well. All it takes is, you know, less than a month for it to become subconscious and to start seeing results. And then three months or so for it to become like a new part of who you are that's unlikely to change. And so we can absolutely heal and we can undo decades of trauma or or stress in just a few months and and even shorter term, you know, just a few weeks for it to become subconscious. Oh, good. (laughs) That's a relief. (laughs) No, I really appreciate your distinction that these things were programmed in and they can be deprogrammed out. And that involves doing the opposite. So the dismissive avoidant often is a result of neglect and the lack of attunement. So what do we need? Loving attention from somebody who loves us or that we can give to ourselves. Absolutely. So you just mentioned how when we come into this world, we are extraordinarily dependent on others to take care of us, right? Someone needs to feed us, shelter us, clothe us, and that sort of thing. And much of this dependency on love and connection continues in our adult lives is that we remain social creatures and we want somebody to talk to and somebody to hear us. So I'm curious when that level of dependency becomes unhealthy, right? I think we can all recognize how amazing love is and how beautiful love is and that we do have a need to connect with others. And sometimes, let's say you're in a marriage and one person is the breadwinner and the other one is the stay-at-home caregiver that takes care of the children. Well, it's like that person's a little dependent on the breadwinner in that moment, right? So... When we talk about codependency, what level of dependency is unhealthy? What are the red flags we want to look out for? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. So the main feature of codependency is that we learn to basically give up our sense of selves in order to have a relationship to others. And that's where it becomes unhealthy. So this idea or concept, let's say, of, oh, I'm going to meet all of your needs, and then you're going to meet all of my needs, and then we're both going to be happy. That idea, although we get a lot of that imagery and like information portrayed to us through social media or through like Disney movies as children or growing up and seeing romantic comedies, things like this, they're highly dysfunctional. And here's why. Let's pretend you and I are in a relationship, okay? And let's pretend that I am giving up all of my sense of self to meet your needs. So things that I want to do with friends or family or you know, the the career I wanted to be a part of that I left behind so I could 
really focus on the relationship and your career, let's pretend, okay? So we go down this path. The moment I'm doing that, if on a Friday evening you don't call me back, it's going to be chaos, right? It's going to be like, are you kidding me? I gave up my whole life for you. And now you couldn't even call me back. And we set this really, really painful standard in our relationships. The moment we give up our sense of self, now, you know, we've given up so much. And the subconscious mind, because it's naturally always seeking equilibration and homeostasis, it wants it and it assumes at a deep level that you're going to be giving up to the same degree. And the moment that doesn't happen, it's going to be a volcano erupting, right? So we have that one really important component. And if we don't know who we are and we don't know our sense that we're not connected to our sense of self, another big problem that arises that's related to codependency is I'm not going to know what my needs are to really communicate in a healthy relationship. I'm not going to know what my boundaries are. And then we get into this funny territory where one or both parties expect one another to mind read. And it's like whoever is the better mind reader is going to be in trouble less. But if the other person's not good at mind reading and, and one person is, again, there's going to be problems. And all conflict is born of a perceived imbalance of Time, space, energy, or matter. So whenever we perceive that there's an imbalance between two or more parties across any of those features, that's where conflict comes from. And so codependency is like the perfect recipe for conflict because we learn to throw ourselves away. We learn to get rid of our self-identity, not pay attention to our own needs, our feelings, and our boundaries, which are all really important components of having a healthy relationship. And then we expect one another to fill our cup in that area that we've created our own void to begin with, that ultimately only we can heal that void. And then we get into really messy territory and circumstances and we become sort of addicted and reliant on somebody else because if they're the only person that can fill our cup, then, oh my gosh, what if something happens to that relationship? Our cup can become empty and will we survive? And who's going to meet our needs then if, if we don't trust ourselves too? And so, you know, codependency really creates a lot of those dynamics. And on the flip side, we want to have somebody who, like we're wired for both attachment and independence. And so, you know, they seem conflicting, but they don't have to be. What we're really trying to get to is healthy interdependence, which means I can have myself and I can have a relationship too. I can meet my own needs 50% of the time and I can express my feelings and self-soothe my own feelings and share my boundaries with people 50% of the time. And the other 50% of the time, you know, give or take, of course, People can meet my needs and I can express what my needs are to people and I can share and I can ask. And, and to have that sort of healthy balance that's the in-between is ultimately what we're striving for. So the main feature of codependency is we give up our sense of selves in order to be in a relationship. And what I'm also hearing is that the kind of person who tends to become codependent tends to not be connected to themselves. They tend to not be clear about their own needs and desires, and then they end up not expressing them. And then they end up almost being a rug that's kind of walked over in the relationship. There's no like pushback about their own desires and wants in the relationship. Which will always leave them feeling unfulfilled, right? Like even if the other mm. person's codependent, sorry for interrupting you, but that's such the important feature is like, you might think, oh, like the person's going to get back to me. But if you don't even know what you want, efficiently or effectively in order to communicate it, even if the other person's batting like 90 out of 100, like then you're still going to feel unfulfilled because ultimately you can't get inside yourself and clearly express what you desire. And so your cup is always going to be left empty to some degree from somebody outside of you. 
So we talked earlier about how our early attachment patterns affect our adult romantic relationships. And I'm wondering, what does the past of people who become codependent kind of look like? And I'm almost, you know, imagining it's probably just slightly gendered, just because there are still lots of patriarchal elements in our culture and still many other cultures who teach women that in order to be complete, they have to find a man or that they should be expected to give up their careers and professional life in order to raise the children and things like that. So I'm wondering what type of people tend to become codependent? Great question. And you raised some really important points. So I would say overall, the two attachment styles that you're going to see the most are anxious, preoccupied, and fearful avoidant. Dismissive avoidance, the one that go through emotional neglect, they're often what we call counterdependent. So they are like almost avoiding like the, the polar end of the spectrum. But anxious and fearful avoidance for two very different reasons. So one thing we'll see is the anxious preoccupied, like we talked about, who goes through that perceived abandonment in childhood, you know, they are very likely to become codependent because they are going to do everything they can to avoid those really big pain wounds. The brain is more wired and more focused on avoiding pain than seeking pleasure. So if we have this huge fear of abandonment, you know, and we're doing everything we can to avoid abandonment, well, a really easy strategy is I'm going to contort myself into anything somebody needs for me to be, aka the ultimate people pleaser, in order to avoid abandonment. And while that's a subconscious strategy that seems to make sense on one level, it's ultimately something that that really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy long-term. We're actually way more likely to be abandoned if we are sort of creating that behavior. And then the fearful avoidant, one of the really interesting things about them is if you have a parent or a caregiver who is an addict or there's lots of violence or fighting or you know, one parent's always pitting the child against the other parent or things like this. Basically, that child is going to be like, oh my goodness, my home is chaos. My childhood is chaos. And in order to stay safe, I have to make sure I don't rock the boat at all because bombs are going to go off at any time. Parent might drink, parent might drug, parents could fight, you know, depending on obviously what the the context is that creates the fearful avoidance, but it usually falls under those sorts of categories. And then in order to stay safe, I have to become really good at people pleasing. And so anxious preoccupied will often be the more pervasively codependent. They'll be codependent in their friendships, in their co-working relationships. You know, they're, they're very likely to be very big people pleasers, forego their own boundaries, things like that in all relationships. And fearful avoidance, because it's so profoundly linked to safety and survival to be codependent, they'll often be not very codependent in the more surface level relationships, but in those really personal relationships that remind them of the depth of intimacy they had with their caregivers, aka their romantic relationship in adult life, they will usually be extremely codependent, even more so than the anxious preoccupied, but in that specific relationship as opposed to it being a more pervasive thing. So it can absolutely be gendered, like you said, and of course there's more messaging given to women and and things like that. And there's biological features that actually play into that as well to a certain degree. But just because somebody chooses, for example, to stay at home with the kids, be it a man or a woman, but let's say, you know, stereotypically more women, then it still doesn't mean that person has to be codependent. That person could be very secure and still make those decisions. As long as they still have their sense of self-identity as long as they still communicate their boundaries, their needs, they're showing up for their feelings, these sorts of things, then they can be in a really healthy interdependent relationship, even though that's their lifestyle decision. And we could even sort of look at it from the opposite perspective, like the stay-at-home parent 
if the other parent's working full-time, well, for that parent who's working full-time to have a healthy family relationship to a certain degree, they're a little bit dependent on the person staying at home to make sure everything's in order and balanced and kids are taken care of and there's, you know, healthy family time and all these different things. So there's a, a sacrifice both parties make in dynamics like that. And that doesn't necessarily produce codependence or not, but attachment cells definitely have a big role. And then of course, some of the messaging we get that create the programs we learn through which we relate to other people plays a massive role. And obviously those do tend to be more one-sided towards women. It's amazing how everything is connected. I'm hearing you like, how do I get out of codependency? And then you say, know your boundaries, know your needs, know your feelings. And our last episode was with Allison Moon, a sex educator. And I was like, Allison, you know, what's the ticket to great sex? And she was like, know your boundaries, know your needs, know your feelings. No way. <laughs> so the same principles, you know, they apply in all, the, all these areas of our intimate lives. And so if codependency is when we give up our sense of selves to be in a relationship with someone else, how is that different than enmeshment? Beautiful question. So enmeshment, you can think of as being the absence of boundaries in the way we emotionally relate to other people. And codependency would be more so the behaviors that we take on in the way that we connect with other people or relate to people. So we can be enmeshed, but be counterdependent. So for example, we have different types of boundaries. So we have time boundaries. And this could be, for example, if my neighbor says, hey, I need to move. Will you help me move the stuff out of my house tonight and load the moving truck from midnight until 4am, you know, I have to really take a look at like my time boundaries there. Is that a violation of my time? Is that time I can give? That might be if somebody's unemployed during COVID and their neighbor is a very close friend and has helped them out, things like that, then you might go, yeah, that's not too much of a violation. But if somebody's working full time and has three young kids and family stuff going on, it might be a huge violation of time boundaries. So we have time boundaries and we can't ultimately know if a time boundary is violated or not unless we tune into ourselves and ask ourselves and take ourselves and our lives into consideration and really see and come up with that answer from the inside out. And so we have time boundaries, we have physical boundaries, which are pretty self-explanatory, sexual boundaries, of course, material boundaries. So if somebody borrows something and doesn't give it back, or if somebody asks for something that they can have, things like this. And then we have our thought or opinion boundaries and our emotional boundaries. Enmeshment usually has to do with violations of our emotional boundaries. So for example, let's say I live with somebody and let's pretend it's a parent. And whenever I see that parent in pain, I start feeling in a lot of pain and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to fix their pain for me to be okay. You know, so we take on a lot of somebody else's emotions. We sponge in. We don't really know where our identity ends and somebody else's begins, but we may not behaviorally act on that. We might go, okay, well, I feel bad when I'm noticing that this person is in pain, but I don't feel like I have to then go take care of them and do everything for them. I might feel an inclination to do that or an impulse to do that, but my behavior isn't necessarily doing that. I'm not dropping my life or giving up my job or things like that to go do that. Codependency will have the violation of those original boundaries, but then you'll see the behavioral component on top of that. So we'll see somebody literally, you know, quitting their job to go take care of a parent or not taking themselves into consideration. And then their behaviors are a total lack of consideration to themselves. So those are really the big major differences in there. 
Awesome. So enmeshment is the absence of boundaries. And I love all the categories you just mentioned. We have boundaries around time, around our physical space and physical needs, sexual boundaries, material boundaries, and even boundaries around our own thoughts, opinions, and emotions. And I'm wondering if you could give our listeners just some awesome examples of boundaries that you wish almost like more people set more often in the relationships. So what are some really life and self and relationship serving boundaries that you think more people should know about? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. So I would say the first one is really our time boundaries. And this is a concept most people just aren't aware of. And the really big key to learning our boundaries and acting with boundaries when we've been out of relationship to ourselves for so long, which is obviously quite common, is are you able to take yourself into consideration each time you make a decision? So instead of having this automatic programming that maybe you developed as a survival mechanism to navigate your crazy childhood, and you just learn to say yes to everything and people please to kind of get by, instead of having that program speak for you when somebody asks you, let's say going back to that example, hey, can you help me move my furniture at 4 a.m.? You know, instead of that, we have to be able to go, instead of just that automatic impulse to feel pressured to say yes, we have to be able to go, okay, let me think about it. Where am I at? How much energy do I feel like I have? How much time do I have right now? And when taking yourself into consideration to be able to make an answer come out of that space. So that's a big part of our time boundary. And it's a huge concept for people to really practice getting involved in. And then another big thing I see a lot, especially in codependent or in mesh dynamics, is we'll often see people really violate their own thought boundaries. So maybe their partner has an opinion. And they will not share their own opinion because it conflicts with their partner's opinion. So they might go, oh, you know, this is your political view. And instead of saying, well, this is mine and it's okay to disagree, they actually minimize themselves and who they are and what their opinions are and part of their identity in that area just to avoid conflict or just to maintain connection or avoid abandonment. And so people, it's very important for people to really take into consideration their thoughts and opinions and ideas and to feel like, I don't abandon myself by trying to repress them in order to gain favor with someone else. And then the very last one that I would say is utmost importance that's often underrated is our emotional boundaries. So how much are we taking on other people's emotions and then thinking we have to solve them instead of really honoring people and going, you know what, you know, suffering happens and sometimes it's not easy. And if somebody asks me for support in a specific way, I can take myself into consideration and see how I can show up for them according to what is currently going on in my life. But, you know, I can't just try to fix everybody's problems without them asking. I can't, you know, start suffering for them because then it's just two people suffering and and nothing good coming out of it. So we have to be able to trust people to deal with their own lives and to show up for themselves and give people that space. And sometimes the absence of that does two really important things. Number one, it enables somebody else to not be accountable for themselves, which actually has a lot more long-term negative consequences for that other person that we're trying to help. And number two, people who are codependently constantly trying to solve other people's problems without being asked, usually they go through this really interesting dynamic where they can seemingly be the, the super strong empath and they're being like super empathetic and caring and all these different things. But then if you're constantly pouring your cup out to others and never refilling your own cup, you are just on a one-way ticket to becoming the other end of the spectrum, which is the narcissistic side. And if we don't have somebody filling our own cup and we're not filling our our own cup either, and we're giving, 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 sometimes we can be forced into a position where we're forced to become the takers. We're forced to become really selfish and self-oriented because 
we're in an in emergency mode or status. And so that pendulum can really swing there as well if we're not careful. And so that's why there's so much value in having that balance and having the ability to like show up for our own needs, show up for our own boundaries, fill our own cup halfway, and then also be able to give to other people while being mindful of our own boundaries during that entire process. Mm. It's so empowering having the willingness and the courage to express one's boundaries. And it's really incredible to hear from you just how serving that is, A, for yourself, B, for the relationship, and C, for the other person too. Absolutely. And what I find big time is that often when we go through that, so I'll share personally, I was definitely quite codependent. I was a fearful avoidant attachment style. And I learned at a point, like I'm always giving of myself. Like I'm always giving to anybody who I think ever needs help, Mm. never considering myself or my boundaries. And I would always run out of things to give eventually and have to say no, you know, or, or have to have no resources to give or things like that. And when I really learned to take myself into consideration and be like, okay, where am I at and how much can I give? And to give from that, ultimately I was able to really build up my life and really build up, you know, my finances and my business and career and all these wonderful areas of my life. And then I have so much more to give when people ask and it's not sacrificial. It's like if somebody needs, you know, a thousand dollars when you have a thousand and one dollars in your bank account, that's a really scary give. But if somebody needs a thousand dollars when you've got a lot more money than that, then, you know, we feel like that doesn't feel sacrificial. And so the more we really build up our sense of self by being able to have healthy boundaries, take ourselves into consideration, ultimately we propel ourselves into a state where you have so much more to be able to give to people than you would have in the past by giving of yourself. So thank you so much, Thais. I feel really bad, but I know this is part of the deal. I have to set a boundary because this hour with you has just totally flown by. You're just a fountain of knowledge and I could just bask in it all day. But we are really running low on time. So I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply... What do you wish everyone knew about love? One of the most important, that's quite simple, but has such a profound impact, principles about love that's often so overlooked, is that we all go through the system of punishment reward. We get socialized, we get conditioned. It's an important part of how we figure out how to live and learn in society. But often what that creates is this experience as children of being punished for doing things wrong and rewarded for doing things right. So it's like we become afraid of the punishment and then afraid of not receiving the reward. And then we start becoming very approval seeking because of that. But more than that, we tend to internalize that system of punishment reward in the relationship to ourselves. And we judge ourselves as being bad for a mistake or we tell ourselves off. We call ourselves, oh yeah, that was so stupid, or you're an idiot for doing that, or we become very critical to ourselves in our internal dialogue because essentially what we've done is taken that system we all experience and then we're engaging that system in in the relationship to ourselves. And one of the most important parts of self-love and self-healing is to not be that way to ourselves, to learn to humanize ourselves and be empathetic towards ourselves and understand why we did the things we did instead of just beat ourselves up for for doing them. And so self-compassion and self-understanding and being able to hold space gently for ourselves is ultimately a huge component of self-love. And I think until we get that right, we have very limited ability to really healthily and more unconditionally love others. And so I think that's an important part of our own healing that then has a huge impact on our external relationships. Mm. 
That's so beautiful. I'm imagining that there's like a tumor. There's a tumor of an internalized system of punishment and reward. And we want to take it out and replace it with self-love and empathy and compassion and understanding. I love that. I love that analogy. So thanks again, Thais, for coming on to the show. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Uh, so I put free YouTube content out basically every single day at personaldevelopmentschool-thaisgibson. And then we have an online school as well with all sorts of different courses and live webinars and social experiences with like-minded people. And that's www.personaldevelopmentschool.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all the insight and knowledge and wisdom that you have. I have so much, so many notes and so many lessons from today. I'll just mention a few of them. So we hope you listeners remember that the subconscious mind is the lens you see reality through. And we all see reality through a filter of our past experiences. A past has been programmed into us. And guess what? We get to deprogram it and replace it with more life-serving ones. Codependency is when we give up our sense of self to be in a relationship. Enmeshment is the absence of boundaries. And the solutions to both of these is self-identity, boundaries, knowing your needs, knowing your feelings, being able to express them in any relationship that you're in, whether it's an intimate one or with your friends, family, or coworkers. And lastly, we all have an internalized system of punishment and reward, and we can take that out because you deserve love and you deserve happiness. So treat yourself with love, compassion, understanding, and empathy. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Thais. Thank you so much for having me. That was such a good summary. <laughs> Blown away <laughs> so at much. how much you got that all so succinct. <laughs> it was good. No, you're, you're amazing at explaining these really complex topics in a really simple way we can all understand so thanks so much thank you so much thanks again for listening to the learn to love podcast to learn more about the show and your host head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com you can also follow zach on facebook twitter and instagram 